The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 to 25 is where we'll be focusing this morning and tonight. I took some study material with me while I was gone, which was really useless, to be honest with you. I knew that was going to be the case. So I was able to study once I got home Wednesday, stayed up late Thursday night to work on this sermon and to dive into it and to see it's it's got a lot of controversy within the passages that we're going to look at. It's really hard to cover all in the morning, our morning time, so I'll try to break it up into two sections if I can. That's my goal. But last week, Pastor Scott uh, shared a message with you, and it, he did a really good job. I had the privilege of listening to it uh, on the plane on the on the way home. And I just want to kind of review a little bit of what he covered. He focused on verses 10 through 14. So look at with me, if you would, at verses 10 through 14. It says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith, yet... The law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We look at this passage, one of the things that we see is we see that God has made salvation possible, and he has finished it through the work of Christ, through the work of Jesus. It's, it's over. It was done in him. There was nothing else needed. Nothing else had to be done. And Pastor Scott talked about that word curse and looking at the curse and, and talking about the law. And I'll talk about that a little bit more this morning. But we see that when we see that we are cursed by the law, what Christ has done is Christ became a curse for us on the tree. He took that curse upon him so that we wouldn't have to take that anymore. And there's there's no way around that. It has to be through Christ. He, Pastor Scott used a very uh, memorable illustration, at least it was to me at the time. He talked about a five-star restaurant versus a buffet. And he talked about how at a five-star restaurant, how, how the chef makes sure everything is perfect. And you can't go in there, and this drives me crazy anyways with people, Can you change that to French fries, maybe? Or do you have some ketchup that I can pour all over this steak that you just cooked for me? No, right? At a five-star, you don't do that. That chef made it perfect, just how it is supposed to be. It's almost artwork for them compared to the buffet where you get to just kind of go and pick and choose and decide whatever you want, whatever your fancy is, you know, and those, I guess, have their place in our in our life. But that's not how it is with the gospel. God has had a plan all along, and it's not a plan that can be changed. It's not a plan that we can change, that we can add to or, or to take away from. And so this morning, as we focus on verse 15 through 25, we'll probably only get to verse 20 this morning. What we're going to see is we're going to see the promise of a covenant talked about. And Paul is going to answer two questions concerning the law that come up very logically as we go with his flow here as we continue to read him, because that is what Paul does. He's using just a logical flow here in his arguments 
And what he'll do is he's going to use some human examples for us to really understand what God has done through Christ and our relationship with Christ and our relationship with the law. Because that has to be the question that comes, and that's what we'll dive into more uh, this morning and also tonight is, what is the purpose of the law then? If it's about grace, if, it, if it's about what Christ has done for us, and the, the Judaizers come in here and they're telling, they're telling people, yeah, but you still got to follow this of the law. And Paul is saying, no, absolutely not. It, it's Christ alone, faith alone. It's, it's grace alone. It's, it's the, what God has done, the work that he has done. Then, then what is our relationship to the law? And take it a little further. Why'd God even give it then? Right? Well, what was the purpose of it? And so we're going to see that question come up. And it's a good question that we need to be able to answer. So let's read verse 15 through 18 together, and we'll dive into that and see how much farther we get. It says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. Yet, if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. In this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. There's a lot in here, and I want to take it verse by verse the best that we can. And we look at verse 15. Paul uses a very human example here when he starts to talk about a covenant. The word covenant comes up for the very first time in the book of Galatians. And he talks about it being an unchanging covenant. And he says something that really, I think, is confusing. He says, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, maybe what you're thinking and what I think, I guess, when I first read that is this. What do you mean a, a covenant can't be changed? People change wills all the time. Maybe you have done that. Maybe you have got with a lawyer and you wrote out a will, but then things change. Does it not? Circumstances change. And so you go back and you get with your lawyer and you, you change the will. You change what's going to happen. Maybe you as a parent use this as a, as a threat to your children. It's easy for me to make this change. You better behave. All it takes is a pen. All it takes is a signature. You're out. Sadly, in the line of work that I do and being in funeral homes and dealing with families a lot, I see the difficulty with wills and families. I see the hurt that it causes. A family that which was once together, somebody passes away and they're now divided over things. They're divided over the will, what was left to them, you know, or what they didn't get. And so we ask, this just doesn't make sense because that can be changed. But what Paul points out to us is he says, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, your translation might say something a little bit different. But what Paul is getting at here is he is saying, when the person has passed, you cannot change the will. It's over. It's ratified. It's complete. It's not going to be changed at all. And so you have seen maybe people try to go to court before to say, well, my mom didn't really mean that in this. We see it with celebrities. I think it was uh, Aretha Franklin. They said they found like a will in the couch or something. We're going to change it. We found this in the couch. Just ludicrous, crazy. 
This will stands. It's what is written. The, the person has passed and it's, it's over. It's what they've signed. It's what they've wanted. And it cannot be changed once it is ratified. So what's this is pointing to us is it's talking about the legally binding covenant that God had made with Abraham through Christ. Through Christ, that he made this promise, he made this covenant. And Paul is saying, if this is true for us as humans, then how much more true is it for God? That it cannot be annulled, it, it cannot be changed. It, no matter how hard you want it to change, how much you want it to change, it's, it's not going to happen. It's an unchanging covenant. The promise of God is true. You say, well, why do we harp on that for so long? Why do we, what's the importance of this? Well, for us as Christians who've been saved by the grace of God, this should come to great encouragement for you because it can't be taken from you. It's been signed. It's been sealed. It's been ratified. It's, it is complete. You are his. You can't be pulled away. There's nothing you can do to pull yourself away. You are his. There's no court that can say different. That should be a great encouragement to us because if you're anything like me, there's so many times in my life when I look and I think, man, I am not doing what God would have me to do. Or I start to question in my mind, why would I be one of God's? Am I one of God's? And what always pulls me back is the truth of God's word, these truths that we see here. That man, in this moment, I don't feel like I'm God's. I'm not even acting like I'm God's. But yet because of the truth of God's words that it cannot be annulled, it cannot be added to, it cannot be changed, then I know 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'm his because his promise is mine. And so we see that the covenant is unchanging in verse 15. Look at verse 16. It talks about the heir. It says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed, who is Christ. A lot of people attack this passage of Paul, and they say that Paul has a very weak argument here, that his argument is very weak because he's talking about how when God made the promise to Abraham, and he he talks about your seed, that Paul is saying this is singular. And it's singular, and it's pointing to Christ. But what a lot of people will say, yeah, but that could be plural as well. It could just be referring to seeds everywhere. all All the people who will come from Abraham. But what Paul is saying, he's saying, no, this promise is made singularly to Abraham's offspring. And what it is talking about, what God was talking about, even then was Jesus, that the offspring in mind is Christ, that he is going to be the heir of all the promises given to Abraham. And so when we see the promises that were given to Abraham in that covenant that God made with Abraham saying, All the land will be yours and your seed will be great, right? As much as the sand is on the seashore, all this stuff, that that promise is what is given to Christ and through Christ. We see this in Hebrews. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. The writer of Hebrews talks about this as well and shows this to be true. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, Hebrews 1, uh, 1 through 4. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. And then catch this. Whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person 
and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, which this will be important for us in a little bit, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. One of the things that we need to understand is the promises that God made to Abraham have been fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the one who receives all things. Why? Because he is the victor. He is victorious. He is the one who has conquered. He is the one who has won the war. And so all the spoils go to him. And so God the Father has made Jesus the Son heir of everything, of all things. Now, a lot of times we want to look and and say, well, that's a promise for me as well. The Jewish people do this. They did this with the land. But that promise is not given to us. The promise was given to the seed, Jesus. But what we see is the only way that we can receive this inheritance is through Christ, is accepting him as the heir, accepting him as the Savior. It says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 17. It says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the only ways that we can be heirs to the promises of God is if it is done through Christ, through Jesus, if we trust in him, if we believe with him. And in Romans, it says, when we suffer with him, we understand what he had come for. So this idea of being an heir is a great thing. It's a great thing to see. But if you're here this morning and you're apart from Christ, you're separated from Christ, there's there's absolutely no way to be an heir to the things of God. Just before I came in here, I was reading an article. I think it was in the USA Today, and it was an opinion piece. And it was written by a 15-year-old girl who was mad at the church. And so she started to explain to the church how churches could be better. And it was exactly probably what you're thinking. It had nothing to do with read more scripture, trust God more. It was, you need to be more inclusive. You need to not be you know, so judgmental. Churches shouldn't be hypocritical. And she went on to say how she was very happy with some churches uh, the Unitarian Church, who uh, they take their students now to the Jewish synagogue and they'll take them to the Muslim mosque and see how we can all work together. And she was saying, that's what the church should be. If you want to get my age group, she was saying, then you must do this. Well, I hope that as I say this, you understand what is wrong with what she is saying. Oh, that might get us some accolades in this world. It might raise us up the ladder of our society, and people think, you know what, that's a pretty good church. They really like a lot of people. But if we live our life apart from Scripture, then we will never become heirs of the promises of God. And then thus, we are not a church. We are not a church that is founded on Christ. And so while I appreciate her thoughts and I liked reading what she had to say, the problem was I could, we couldn't introduce any of that here and still call us a Bible-believing faith-based, Jesus-loving church. That's just not how it is. Because God has this plan. He has made a covenant. He has made a promise with Abraham. And it has been given to his seed, which is Christ. And the only way to partake in those promises, the only way to be an heir, is if you fall in line with Christ, if you trust in him and who he is and what he has done. Verse 17 through 18, as we continue on, We see the covenant made. We see that the heir is an heir. And then in verse 17 through 18, we see a promise, the promise. 
It says, and this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. What Paul points out here is when he's looking back again, and you got to remember, he's talking to Judaizers who are smart people. They know their Bible very well. And what he points out to them is he says, the law that you are talking about that must be added in order for them to be Christians came 430 years after God made the promise to Abraham. So what comes up, what he's kind of saying is, so, so what you're saying then is that God needed to add something to the promise. So God messed up with his first promise. The first thing that he said, and it took him 430 years to figure it out to when that would happen. See, there's, there's a difference between the promise of God and the law of God. They are, they are different things. And this is where we really get into the meat of this passage. I want to read a quote for you. This comes from Philip Ryken. It's in a commentary that I've been reading for this. It says, when he made the promise to Abraham, God said, I will, I will, I will. But in the law of Moses, God says, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. Now, when you take these two examples here, you cannot butt them together and say they are the same thing. Because in Abraham, God just flows out all these promises of what he is going to do. And then in the law, it's, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. And this is what the Judaizers were attaching to. They were saying, this is what we need to do. This is what you must do. But what Paul does is Paul steps back again and he's saying, no. Grace has no strings attached. If if that law was so important, then why didn't God give it to Abraham? Why wasn't it there then? What Paul's pointing to, he's saying, because the promise is so much greater. The promise is so much bigger than even the law. And that's what he talks about in verse 19 through 20. And we're going to end with verse 19 through 20 this morning. Follow along with me as I read verse 19 and 20. It says, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Now, verse 20 is one of the more confusing verses in all of Scripture. And you will find hundreds upon hundreds of interpretations of this passage, none of which I think make a huge, great deal to change the passage. But we're going to talk about it a little bit. Uh, here now. But Paul first, he's going to ask two questions. I read the first one. We'll get to the second one tonight. But he says, why then the law? Again, this is an understandable question. If grace, we are saved by grace, apart from the law, apart from works, then what is the purpose of it? What is the point of it? And Paul answers that very clearly. He says, what is the point does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. The law was given to Israel. The law was given for us to see so that we can understand sin. We can understand our separation between a holy God and sinful man. That is the first use of the law that we see happening and that taking place that Paul is talking about. And so when we look at the law, even still today, when we go back to those passages of Scripture that we simply don't want to look at because we say they're boring, or whatever the case might be, 
what becomes very clear as we read them is how we simply fall short of it all the time. I want to do this. I want to do a little challenge for us this morning to show us how we fall short just by reading the Ten Commandments to us. Now, you might say, man, that is so elementary. The Ten Commandments, we've been learning that since we were little kids. Isn't that the thing that we're trying to get removed from all the courthouses? Yes. But I want you to listen to the Ten Commandments, and I want just in reading Ten Commandments how utterly sinful we are as we compare ourselves to them. This is in Exodus chapter 20. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now, I don't have time this morning to dive into all of these. I have a sermon series that I've preached before in the Ten Commandments. It's like six weeks long. But it's quite obvious, I think, as we read this and as we understand the words of Jesus, as Jesus would talk about, if you've even had hate in your heart, you've murdered your brother. When we really look at the extent of the Ten Commandments, it should become very clear to us very quickly, all of us in here, that we simply fall short of the glory of God. We do not match the standards that God has given us. And the only way that we know the standards that God has given us is because God has given us the law. And so when we ask God, why did you give us the law? The first response that we would hear from God that Paul is talking about here in this passage he is saying, God is saying, I've given you the law so you can see how bad you are. So that you can really see the state that you find yourself in. Wants you to understand how separated you are from me. This isn't something that we like to talk about very often. It's not something that we like to think about. But without really grasping this truth, of the separation between us and God. I, I, there is no salvation. You, you must know your utter sinfulness before God. You must get to that point to realize that you have no way to know God, to have a relationship with Him because of your sin. And there must be then a, a falling on your face of sorts to come before God and say, God, I completely understand that it's because of Christ and His work 
It's the only way I can have a relationship with you. Because he died on a cross for my sins, which are so clear to me. And I accept that gift. I accept that gift of grace. Receive that. I wonder oftentimes how many people really get to that point. Because we continue to live our lives as if sin is a small thing. But yet when we compare ourselves to the law and we see what great extents God has gone through to give us his law, to see our sin, we have to realize how big it is. So much so that when Isaiah would see God in the temple, what would he do? He would fall before God and he would say, oh, I'm, I am unclean. I shouldn't even be here with you. I, I shouldn't even be in your presence. He quickly realized where he stood before God. I really think it would do us some good to understand where we stand before God. And you say, well, I'm a Christian. Absolutely. And so we have Christ's righteousness on us. But we shouldn't forget the holiness of God. We shouldn't minimize that ever as we walk with him on a daily basis. As we get to the second half of verse 19 and we look at verse 20, Paul does something kind of different for us, and he says how the angels delivered the law. Well, if you've studied the Old Testament at all, you know that you might say, I don't remember that part of God giving the Ten Commandments. I don't remember it saying that it was done through an angel. But this is why we need to have all of Scripture together. Because if you look in Deuteronomy 33.2, this is Moses towards the end of his life. He says that the law was delivered by angels. Uh, if you go to Psalm 68.17, and just because of time, I don't want to read all these, David says the same thing in that psalm. In Acts chapter 7, verse 53, as Stephen is about to be stoned and he is talking to everybody, he says, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So Stephen even mentions that. And then Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2 says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So again, even in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews knows that the law was given by angels. So this is something that was known. And so what Paul is setting up for us here is he's showing us that the law actually came to us through a third party. It went from God to the angels, to Moses, to Israel. And this is important because then he talks about how it is mediated now through Christ. And it says God is one, right? And again, he's trying to show how the promise with Abraham is bigger than the law. And so if the law was given to us third hand, God, angels, Moses, Israel, then how much more important is the promise that God gave to Abraham? Because that was straight from the Lord. It was mediated by God. It was given by God directly to Abraham. No angels were involved in this. God spoke directly to Abraham to tell him this truth. There was no mediator needed. Now, when I looked at some commentaries, and I think that this could be true, the reason that God delivered the law through angels was this. He wants us again to see the separation of God and man. That it's so vast that the angels were needed to deliver the law. And you remember what happened to Moses in that time, do you not? His face shined so much that when he went down off that mountain and he started talking to Israel, what did they do? Whoa! Cover your face! We can't know 
because the glory that shone off of Moses just from the law being handled to angels, to him, was too much so. And so Paul is pointing out to us saying, if that was such a big deal, if the law was such a big deal, how much more so the promise of God that was mediated strictly through God, saying God is one. It was mediated through him. The way I want to end service this morning might be a little different, but I can't, I couldn't help but think of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 through 6, as I read this verse. And I want you to turn there with me. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 through 6. Because when we talk about a mediator, my mind always goes to Christ. A mediator is someone who mediates. We, as sinful people, are separated from a holy God. And so then the question that remains is, how then can I have a relationship with God? If he can't even hear me because of my sin, if he's not going to see me because of my sin, if I'm separated from him, then what is the answer? How can I have a relationship with him? How can I make this better? How can I make this right? To think of it maybe more in a human term, maybe you've had a falling out with a friend before. And it was bad, and you guys went and talked to each other, and you wanted to apologize, but you knew that you couldn't go to them one-on-one because they would have nothing to do with it. If they saw your phone number, they're side-buttoning you. They're not going to call you back. And so what you maybe have tried to do is you said, well, maybe I will send a mediator. Probably didn't say it in that way. But you said, you know what? She's friends with her, and I'm friends with her. I'll send her to say, hey, they want to mend things up. They want to apologize. And so you send a mediator beforehand. On our relationship with God, we need a mediator. There needs to be something so that we can have that relationship with God. And 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 through 6 speaks of this. It says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. You see, at the end of Galatians there that we read, it said, but God is one. And what is so great about this story, about this plan that God has had, is that all along, God's plan has been about him and how he was going to solve that problem. You see, you and I have no way to go to him on our own. Absolutely none. But what God knew because of his holiness was that he would have to do it. That is why there is such a great importance for us to understand God is three in one trinity and what that means. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's saying God is one, and what God has done for us, and please hear this, is God has come as our mediator in Christ, in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus came, Jesus came and lived this perfect life. He became a curse for us on that tree died on the cross for our sins, raised to new life, and now is with God the Father. And he is mediating for us so that we can speak to a holy God, so that we can approach God's throne. But it must be done through Christ. It's got to be done through Jesus, through trusting in him, through believing in his work, and through believing in his accomplished work, that it is finished that it is done, that you and I don't have to add to it. Uh, Yes, we see the law, but all the law does is show me sin. 
It shows me how desperately I needed a mediator, and thanks be to God, he provided it in himself and his son, Jesus, who willingly died for you and for me so that we have hope, so that when we look at this law, it doesn't crush us. It doesn't destroy us because we know that our hope is in Jesus. We know that he has done the work that we need. Well, I hope that you'll come back tonight because Paul asks a second question in verse 21 through 25, saying, is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Is it contrary to it? Is it fighting against it? Paul, of course, says certainly not. And we'll dive into that more tonight. And I hope you'll come back for that tonight. But this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to God's word. I don't know how God uses these messages. To be very honest with you, when I preach these messages and prepare these messages, I often look and say, I don't know how anything can come of this. But I trust that God's work does what he says it'll do. And so I want you to bow your head with me and I want you to close your eyes and I want to give you an opportunity to respond to his word this morning. We're going to close with a song as well. But Do you realize the depth of your sinfulness as you compare it to God's law? Do you really understand how big of a deal it is? Your one sin maybe that you've committed this morning was enough to completely separate you from a holy God. And we think about all the sins that we continue to pour out in our life. And then we think about the goodness of God, of how he has sent his son to die for those sins, to make a way to have a relationship with that holy God, to even give us power through the Holy Spirit to serve him, to honor him. Do you meditate on that often? Have you trusted in the accomplished, finished work of the cross, of what Jesus had done on that cross? Have you fully surrendered to him, 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt, where you can hold on to that promise of saying the covenant cannot be annulled, cannot be changed? Christian, this morning, as your head bowed and your eyes closed, when's the last time you gave him praise and glory for his finished work? And rested, rested in it as well. God, this morning, I do pray that there'd be people here who would find rest in the finished work of Christ, our mediator. God, I'm sorry for how we've watered down so often sin, how we've watered down your word and the law, where we don't even really think about it much. But God, even as a Christian, even as someone who's been saved by your grace, God, I no doubt know that I'm yours and it's because of you, not me. But God, still sin in my life has to be dealt with on a daily basis. And I'm reminded of that struggle of flesh that I have. But then God, I'm thankful that your word reminds me of who I am in you. And so I can rest in that. And God, I can find encouragement and strength to overcome sin in my life because of the work of the Holy Spirit. So God, this morning, I don't know how you use this message in people's lives. God, there might be someone here this morning who's never understood grace, who's never seen it. God, I pray that you'd open their eyes to your truth this morning. 
to your word, to what you have done in Christ. And God, I pray for those Christians in here this morning who've been struggling. Maybe they've been battling against the law. They keep seeing it. It's the, the evil one keeps reminding them of how they just don't measure up to that standard. God, I pray that you would remind them this morning that Christ has completely measured up to it. And we are his. And because we are his, we are heirs with him. And all the promises that are Christ are ours also. And God, I pray that that would give us strength, that that would give us boldness, that that would give us encouragement to share that with other people. God, help that to be our joy. Help that to be our excitement of what you have done. God, I don't want to have to manufacture up excitement in some other ways. God, your word should be enough. And so excite us by your word to go and to serve and to share, to see you continue to work in the lives of people around us. God, as we sing this song, help us to respond to you how we should. Maybe it's, maybe it is coming forward and praying, or maybe it's just praying where we are. God, just singing praises to you. God, be honored in these last few minutes of our service, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.